As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the time when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, where Jesus was transfigured among them, and they also saw Elijah and Moses. And the other nine disciples were down at the bottom of the mountain, and they had attempted without success to cast a demon from a man's son. And after Jesus and the other three disciples returned from the mountain, and Jesus cast the demon out and cured the boy, the disciples came to Jesus privately and they asked, why could we not drive it out? And Jesus answered them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, the most predominant mountain there around the Sea of Galilee and Galilee was uh, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, you've probably heard about it. It's the largest mountain in Israel. The highest peak of Mount Hermon is at 9,230 feet above sea level. Today, there's a ski resort on Mount Hermon. We normally don't think of Israel and ski resorts and, and those kind of things. Uh, the towering ridges of Mount Hermon can be seen all over that area, all over the region of Galilee and what's called the Golan Heights today. So when Jesus refers to, quote, this mountain, he's talking about the largest mountain the disciples have probably ever seen. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. This mountain? Well, we know that Jesus wasn't talking about a literal mountain, but he was using a figure of speech. He used that large mountain as a visual object lesson. It was a visual object lesson which represented the kind of faith that it takes to surmount the greatest of obstacles. Now, the phrase able to move mountains was common. It was a common figure of speech in Jesus' day, and it was used to Speak of the ability to overcome great obstacles, great barriers, to overcome great barriers. And William Barclay explains how the phrase able to move mountains was used in Jesus' day. He writes, A great teacher who could really expound and interpret Scripture and who could explain and resolve the difficulties was regularly known as an uprooter or a pulverizer of mountains. That's what we all want to be as expounders of scripture, pulverizers of mountains. I'm reminded of the time that uh, Chuck Swindoll said at a, a Promise Keepers Men event one time, he said, I'm the sermonator. And so I've borrowed that, the, the, the sermonator, those who are able to take the difficulties from God's word and pulverize them and make them understood. And so to this day, I, I call Wednesday that I'm down at the church, sermonator, sermonator day. But it means to tear up, to uproot, to pulverize the mountains, he says, were all regular phrases for removing difficulties. Jesus never meant this to be taken physically and literally. After all, the ordinary man seldom finds any necessity to remove a mountain. What he meant was, if you have faith enough, all difficulties can be solved. And even the hardest task can be accomplished. Faith in God is the instrument that allows men to remove the hills of difficulty which block their path. Jesus was talking figuratively about mountain-sized difficulties just as the nine disciples had just experienced in not being able to cast the demon out of the boy. 
So in contrast to mountain-sized difficulties, Jesus says it takes mustard seed-sized faith. Where Mount Hermon was probably the largest mountain they'd ever seen, a mustard seed would have been the smallest seed they'd ever seen. When I had the pleasure of visiting Israel, the entire landscape around the Sea of Galilee was carpeted by beautiful yellow mustard flowers. Everywhere you looked on the rolling hills, there was just all these beautiful flowers. And the mustard seed represents littleness that grows into greatness. The mustard seed plants can grow to be 8 to 10 feet tall. They were about this tall when we were there. And it was kind of neat going to the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, going through, you know, walking through these mustard seed plants. And while we were there, one of the guys came up to me with his finger like this and said, look, pastor, look. And I thought he'd hurt his finger or something. You know, do you need a Band-Aid? What's going on? No, no, look. And, and I look, and there's this little tiny mustard seed right on the end of the tip of his finger. Yet when the mustard seeds, flowers blossom, birds can rest in their shadows. Mustard seed faith represents persistent faith. It's persistent faith that continues to grow and grow and becomes productive because it never gives up. It never gives up. It's the sort of faith that we saw last week with the unrelenting man who kept knocking on the door and knocking on the door of his neighbor's house at midnight until the man came and gave him the bread that he needed. It's the sort of faith exhibited by the oppressed widow who would not take no for an answer from the indifferent judge. Jesus promised that with this kind of faith, the faith of the mustard seed, in view of the mountain-sized difficulties, nothing will be impossible for you. And Nehemiah is our example of what mustard seed faith looks like. The kind of persistent faith that continues to grow and grow until all obstacles are removed. As we go through the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, and they all seem like, this is it. He just can't, and the people of God just can't get through this. But as we recognize the mustard seed faith and what it looks like in Nehemiah, we'll also learn how to recognize and apply that same faith to our own Christian lives and experience. As a believer, how do you live by faith? How do you see God work in impossible situations? As Grace Baptist Church, how do we live by faith as a body of believers? And how do we trust God to work in us and through us and among us and, and see those obstacles removed? And Nehemiah's experience shows us that one person, one ordinary person, can truly make a big difference in the world if that one person knows God and trusts God. One church can make an impact in an entire community with the kingdom of God in unimaginable ways, in spite of overwhelming odds. One high school student, Christian high school student, can make a difference in his or her entire school. The one employee can make a difference in his job situation. Martin Luther said, Faith is living, daring confidence in God's grace. It's so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. The promise of Jesus is all things are possible to him who believes that living faith can move mountains. Living faith pulverizes and uproots the mountainous obstacles that we face along the way of what God wants us to do and who God wants us to be.
And so in the second chapter of Nehemiah, verses 1 through 8, we see three evidences of Nehemiah's faith, three characteristics of mustard seed faith. Nehemiah had the faith to wait, Nehemiah had the faith to ask, and Nehemiah had the faith to plan, waiting, asking, and plan. And as we study these evidences of Nehemiah's mustard seed faith, we can examine our own hearts to see whether or not are we really walking and working by faith or are we trying to accomplish something in our own effort, in our own effort? Are Are we trying to move mountains on our own? That doesn't work very well. And so Nehemiah shows us what walking, living, and obstacle-destroying faith looks like. First of all, Nehemiah had the faith to wait. Wait. Waiting is the toughest thing to do. I can tell you from experience. We want to do something. We want to fix something. We want to try anything because it might help. What could it hurt? And active problem solvers are revered in our culture. People who get right at it turn that portfolio around before the next report is due. So please turn once again to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 2 is placed in the Jewish month of Nisan. And you go, okay, is that a car? What, what is that? In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. In other words, four long months had passed since Nehemiah heard of the horrible plight of the people in Jerusalem. Four long months of weeping, praying, and fasting before the Lord. Nisan is the month of April in our calendar. So Nehemiah had patiently waited on the Lord through the long winter months. So we pick it up at verse 1. It came about in the month of Nisan, or April in our calendar, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, The wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. The effective prayer warrior quickly learns the patience of waiting. As every believer should, Nehemiah patiently waited on the Lord for directions. Nehemiah had not written in this journal that we call the book of Nehemiah, his personal journal, for four months because there was nothing to write. There was no glimmer of hope. There was no change in the situation. Nothing happened. Nehemiah waited patiently for God to remove the barriers. True faith in God brings a calmness of heart, even amidst the sorrow, that keeps us from rushing about and trying to do in our own strength what only God can do. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, for example, says that it is through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. The 16th chapter of Isaiah chapter 28 declares, He that believes shall not make haste. Then remember Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31, He who waits for the Lord shall gain new strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. I was telling somebody this morning, I name my ties. This is mounting up with wings of eagles tie. But the important thing is that like Nehemiah, We must not only know how to weep and pray, to have that brokenness of heart, that brokenness of spirit and praying before the Lord, we also need to know how to wait and pray. All of us, if we're going to be effective servants of God and make a difference in that place that God has placed us, we're going to experience times of waiting and praying. Many of us will experience more than one long season of waiting 
and praying before we mount up with wings as eagles. In May of 2001, I flew to Phoenix, Arizona, leaving my family behind in Idaho to sell the house, borrowed my father-in-law's van in Mesa, Arizona, drove across West, West Texas, which I don't recommend anybody, <laughs> and I moved into the dormitory at Dallas Theological Seminary. After 17 years of what I considered effective ministry, and at 50 years of age, I was in a borrowed car living in a dormitory 2,000 miles away from home. The dormitory was Lincoln Hall. We affectionately called it Stinkin' Lincoln. And I began the process of taking advanced standing exams in the languages so I could enter the upper level language courses. It had been over five months since I'd resigned from the pastorate and received a paycheck. Jan and the kids were still back in Idaho, 2,000 miles away, trying to sell the house while I went to Dallas to try to get things started. And I had the worst case of homesickness you can imagine. I lost 20 pounds the first three weeks I was in Dallas, Texas, away from my family. The Hebrew advanced standing exam didn't go well at all which meant that in Texas years, as we say there, a one-year program would now take two, three, four years, whatever it was. The purpose of the advanced standing exams was to test out of two semesters of Hebrew that I already had and go straight into the upper-level classes. But it had been 15 years since I'd taken Hebrew, and even though I'd studied hard for months and had been a straight-A student in the languages before, I just totally blew the exam. Dr. Glenn, who graded my exam, allowed me to sit in his office and, and look it over. The red ink made it look like it had bled to death. And on the last page, Dr. Glenn wrote, it would be a disaster for Mr. Slaybot to enter the upper level classes. A disaster? I didn't leave my family 2,000 miles away to participate in a disaster. That was not part of it. Furthermore, I hadn't been able to find employment yet. That was one of the reasons for going to Dallas early. Thus far, God had not opened a, a single door or removed a single obstacle or, or anything other than registering for classes that now I was told I could not take. So one Sunday morning, I decided to get out of the dorm. It was about the third Sunday morning I was there, and I decided to drive up to Frisco, Texas to hear Chuck Swindoll preach. I'd only heard him once in person, even though his radio and book ministry had played a very important role in my own Christian life and, and ministry. I really thought this was going to be the only chance I'd ever have to hear Chuck Swindoll preach. In a Stonebriar Community Church, I sat down in the largest worship center that I'd ever seen. It wasn't fancy. It was more like an auditorium. Held 1,500 people. I've seen, or I've seen a lot bigger worship centers since then. But it's feeling like God had put me on a shelf, a sidelined, Homesick preacher in a pew <laughs> or a chair is not a pretty sight. I felt like I'd been shelved like leftovers, you know, those that you never get around to. And when Chuck Swindoll began his message, I felt like I'd traveled all that distance to hear a word from the Lord just from me, for me. And these are the exact words that he began his message that morning. He said, I want to speak today to all of you who find yourself in God's waiting room. For whatever reason, you've been pulled away from the action, certainly the action you once knew. And even though you're fairly well-educated, experienced, and perhaps greatly gifted in that particular field, for some reason, you're not there now. 
And for some unrevealed reason, you are or have entered into a period of waiting. Now, admittedly, your response to this waiting may not be all that great. You know, I wanted to raise my hand. That's me. That's me. <laughs> That's for me. He says, it isn't easy to wait. And to make matters worse, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. As a matter of fact, it bears all the markings of being a long wait. And it doesn't seem fair. Waiting is the hardest thing to do. Our hero, Nehemiah, had waited and prayed for months. He'd held it together on the surface, but it finally breaks loose. He says at the end of verse 1 of chapter 2, Now I had not been sad in the king's presence. Had not been sad in his presence. Meaning Nehemiah had held it pretty together pretty well up to this point. You see, according to the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 2, the Persian kings were sheltered from anything that might bring them unhappiness. Because if the king of the empire is unhappy, everybody else is going to be made unhappy in some way. It meant the death penalty to reign on the king's parade. Because when the king was troubled, everybody else was troubled. And if his cupbearer, though the man who tasted everything, the one he trusted, if he had a troubled look on his face, then the king would think, man, there must be a sinister plot. What does the cupbearer know that I don't know? But Nehemiah could no longer hide his sorrow in the king's presence. Proverbs 15, verse 13 says, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. Nehemiah's spirit was broken. The king noticed that his cupbearer was carrying a burden. Verse 2, so the king said to me, says Nehemiah, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then Nehemiah said, I was very much afraid. Why was Nehemiah afraid? Could be because he feared death? Was he afraid that the king would deny his request? Was he just afraid because he didn't think he was ready to, to present at this time? If Artaxerxes was in a bad mood, he could have banished Nehemiah to someplace like stinking Lincoln <laughs> or someplace worse. He could have ordered Nehemiah to be executed. But instead, the king inquired why his servant was so sad. Would you please turn to the book of Proverbs for a moment? Chapter 21, verse 1. I think I've mentioned this particular passage in every one of our messages on Nehemiah so far, but I want us to see it in, in more depth this morning. The 21st chapter of Proverbs, the first verse, page 796 in the, the Bibles in the racks. Verse 1 of Nehemiah shows that Nehemiah's experience is proof, proof positive that, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. In the Hebrew, which I finally passed and did very well, incidentally, begins with the word channels. Like channels, that's where the emphasis lies. Channels refers to something we're very familiar with in the Emmet Valley, in the Treasure Valley, in the Valley of Plenty. It refers to the irrigation ditches, refers to the canals that run from the main reservoir of water to a dry, thirsty flatland. Here in Emmett, we know exactly what that looks like. Our valley is covered with the irrigation ditches and, and the canals. It uh, was because of the water and the first 
canal in, in Amoth that they started, were able to grow crops around here at all. Uh, Twin Falls, Idaho, which is a very recent place in Idaho, uh, wasn't established until after the, the early 1900s when they finally figured out how to get water from the Snake River and up on the dry, arid plains. And the Persians were famous for the irrigated canals and ditches that, that watered not only their fields and brought water to their towns and villages, but brought water to their hanging gardens, which were the wonders of the ancient world. Like irrigation ditches carrying water, the heart of the king is in Jehovah's hand, says the original. And the idea is that God digs the ditch, God digs the canal, and the water has to go down, it can't go anyplace else, that's where it has to go, that's the king's heart. The writer is saying that the heart that breathes out and communicates decisions and attitudes is in the Lord's hands, that is, God is sovereign. And look at the last part of, of verse 1 of chapter 21. The Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. He dug the, he dug the ditch. It's, it's got to go there. The Lord has the heart of the king in his hand. And incidentally, whether the king is a believer or not is unimportant because God still has his heart in his hand. Literally, the Hebrew says, God causes the king's heart to be bent to be bent. Like irrigation canals carrying water, so is the heart of the king in Jehovah's hand. He causes it to bend and incline in whatever direction he pleases. So let me ask a question at this point. When Nehemiah says he was very much afraid, what was the measure of his faith at that point compared to the mountain that needed to be removed? Nehemiah's faith was less than an eighth of an inch, a mustard seed in comparison to Mount Hermon. But don't miss this. But Nehemiah's patient waiting faith was proved to be genuine. He had the faith of a mustard seed. He had the faith to wait for God's timing, for God's answer. And Nehemiah's answer proved that his faith was genuine Back to verse 3 of Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah answers the king's inquiry about his sadness. And Nehemiah writes in verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Incidentally, that tells us about something of the attitude we need to have for those that God has placed over us in government. Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And I, I appreciate Nehemiah's honesty. Nehemiah admitted to himself that he was afraid and he admitted to the king why he was sad. You know, I read commentaries or comments that pick this verse apart and tell us, well, this is a how-to manual on how to handle difficult bosses or superiors or how to handle elected officials. They quote Peter Drucker a lot, an organizational expert, and they, they missed the point by making this a how-to manual. Maybe these commentators didn't do so well in the Hebrew exam. You see, it's a lack of faith that says you have to use guile or insincerity or to use politics to 
or a particular management technique in order to manipulate the situation or manipulate another person. <coughs> the idea, if you don't play this king like an old fiddle and say it just right or do it just right, it's, it's not going to go my way. And we scheme and plan and try to figure it out so we can change somebody else to get them to our side. And that behavior displays a lack of faith. Now, before we conclude this morning, we're going to see the important role that careful planning plays in mustard seed faith. But it's not planning that conspires on how to change another person or to use so-called proper technique to get people on your side. That's the way of the world. That's not the way of faith. Nehemiah had the faith to wait until God made the first move. And when God moved the heart of the king, Nehemiah was completely upfront and honest in a respectful way concerning his own feelings. Faith to wait. That's mustard seed faith. Nehemiah also had the faith to ask, verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 2. Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now I want to add some background at this point that shows just how big a mountain Nehemiah faced. Because Nehemiah was about to petition the very same king that had put a stop to the rebuilding of the walls a few years before. So turn back a few pages to the book of Ezra. Ezra is the book right before Nehemiah. Chapter 4 of Ezra. And in Ezra chapter 4, Ezra is chronicling the work of Zerubbabel and God's people and the rebuilding of the house of God, the temple. Little review time. Remember... Zerubbabel was called of God to rebuild the temple. Ezra was called of God to rebuild the people. And Nehemiah was called of God to rebuild the walls of the gates of Jerusalem. While Ezra is writing about the rebuilding of the temple 70 years or so before the time of Ezra, he adds a parenthetical section concerning the walls of Jerusalem, a section that says, by the way, or, or also... The work of rebuilding the temple had been thwarted by enemies, and by the way, many years later, so had the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So I want to read several verses of this parenthetical section because it thoroughly describes the mountain that stood before Nehemiah. Verse 7 of Ezra chapter 4, the seventh verse. In the days of Artaxerxes, that is the same king that we're talking about with Nehemiah, the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. In the days of Artaxerxes, the same Artaxerxes whom Nehemiah served, there was a letter sent to Artaxerxes. And in verse 11, we see this is the copy of the letter they sent. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, customer toil, and will damage the revenue of the kings. Now because we are in the service of the palace and it's not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, why? Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. 
so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in the record books and learn that the city is rebellious and damaging to kings and provinces, <coughs> and that they have incited revolt within past days, therefore the city was laid waste. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you have no possession in the province beyond the river. And then verse 17 is Artaxerxes' response to this. Then the king sent an answer to Rahim, the commander, to Simshi, the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Peace. And now the document which you have sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me, and a search has been made, and has been discovered the city has risen up against the kings in past days. The rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it. The mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toil were paid to them. Now issue a decree to make these men stop work so that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehem and Simshai, the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. There's a saying that says, don't try to change it. It's like the law of the Medes and the Persians. Nehemiah was serving the Persian king, the same Persian king who had put a stop to the work before. You might remember that during the time of Esther, when King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus as he's called in scripture, had been tricked into issuing, issuing a decree that called for the death of all the Jews in the Persian kingdom. And King Xerxes could not rescind the decree even though he was the king who made it. And so Xerxes had to make another decree that allowed the Jews to defend themselves, which he did. Now, having searched the records of the kings all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who had destroyed Jerusalem, Artaxerxes decreed that the work of rebuilding the city be stopped by force of arms. That's the mountain that Nehemiah's faith faced. But you see, the heart of the king was in God's hands even when the king had stopped the work. Look again at Artaxerxes' decree to put a stop to the building. It's in verse 21. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work that the city may not be rebuilt. And then there's a little tiny preposition there. Until. Until a decree is issued by me. This is so cool. In God's prophetic timetable, as he keeps his promises, he ensured through Artaxerxes' decree that it, the city would be rebuilt during the time of Artaxerxes. You can see God's hand all over this. Even in the decree that purposed to thwart the purposes of God, what was intended for evil, God intended for good. Back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4. So what does Nehemiah do? He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, this is not one of those prayers of desperation or emergency prayers that, that, that we throw up. This is one of those little telegraph prayers that have been backed up by months and months of prayer. Nehemiah has been diligent to stay in prayer in private, so his telegraph prayers might have gone unanswered if it was just a, you know, the spur of the moment kind of thing. 
God is answering Nehemiah's months and months of fervent prayer. And this gives Nehemiah the mustard seed faith to ask. To ask. Nehemiah had the faith to ask. Verse 5, I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I might rebuild it. Nehemiah had the faith to wait. He had the faith to ask when God opened the door. And Nehemiah had had the faith to plan. Nehemiah had not only been planning for, or, or praying for months, he'd also been planning so that when God opened the door, he would be ready. You see, planning is not inconsistent with mustard seed faith. Verse 6, Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him, what, a definite time. Nehemiah already knew how long it was going to take and what he was going to need to do this, how, how long he'd be gone. And it's, it's a good thing the king asked him how long he would be gone because the king could have said, Nehemiah, take all the time you want. Go for weeks. Go for months. Go for a year or so. In fact, Nehemiah, don't ever come back. <laughs> you know, if you go and you ask your boss for a leave of absence and he says, okay, take a permanent one, you know you're not a very valued employee. The king trusted Nehemiah and wanted him to return. That also meant he trusted Nehemiah to rebuild the walls and not lead the people in rebellion. Having planned and thought it through, verse 7, And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors and the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. Nehemiah would be passing through all these hostile lands, controlled by these hostile officials that used as an excuse to control their little part of the world that they were respectful of the king, which, which they weren't. He'd be going through these lands. He would be stopped, and they'd say, What are you doing? Where are you going? And he'd go, I got these letters. <laughs> he pulls out these letters from them, and they say, Okay, go through. And then verse 8, and give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. Nehemiah knew who Asaph was. He knew where he's going to have to get the timber for these things. That he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortresses by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to where I will go. Nehemiah knew I'm going to need a house to live in while I'm there. He'd already researched where to get the materials, how to requisition the materials he needed. Hey, what are you doing here in the king's forest? Get out of here. Well, I've got these letters. <laughs> Check out these letters. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. When the king asked a specific question, Nehemiah gave specific answers. <coughs> Nehemiah had been doing more than praying for four months. He had been planning. Planning is an exercise of faith. Nehemiah was so sure that God would send him to Jerusalem as soon as the opportunity arose and God answered his prayer. Nehemiah already had a plan. Going out by faith does not mean going out in disorderly and haphazard fashion. I, I, I've seen so many people fail on the mission field or fail in, in other Christian ministries or in a lay ministry or, or in a place of service because they thought being clueless was, was faith. Oh, God's going to provide, you know, and they fail all the time. 
Faith is not a synonym for disorder or a substitute for careful planning. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Proverbs 21.5, The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty surely comes to poverty. Now, does that mean that our plans are going to go exactly like we think or how the obstacles are going to be? I, in my experience and what I read in Scripture, it never happens that way. No, they won't go how you think they're going to go, but they always work out the way God wants them to work out, which is better. When I went to Dallas, Jan and I had carefully prayed and prayed and planned we were looking at one year in Dallas as we had all this figured out, working part-time, pursuing the degree. I had submitted my resume to architectural firms in Dallas, applied for part-time work at the, the new campus at Insight for Living in Plano, Texas. I expected to take and pass the advanced standing exams both in the Hebrew and the Greek. We had it all worked out, as we should have. But then there was the failing of the exam, the rejection letters from architectural firms. I applied at Insight for Living for a, a position in listener services, you know, the one that answers the phone and talks to, to people and takes information or tells them how to get materials or information. And some of you know that I have what I call verbal dyslexia. If someone spells something, I don't have any idea what they're saying. When the kids were little, Jan would spell C-O-O-K-I-E. See, I can spell it this way. The kids would know what I was talking about, but I, I had no idea. I can watch Wheel of Fortune and see a whole phrase up there, and it's missing the second letter of a preposition, a two-letter word, O-something, rather, and I can't get any of the puzzle whatsoever. So Jan thought it was hilarious that I would apply in listener services. Someone would spell their name to me, S-M-I-T-H. Uh, would you please pronounce that? So, <laughs> or J-O-N-E-S. Yeah. Well, I applied for the part-time position in listener services, and I got a call back from Insight for Living. They said I didn't get the job. They, they knew nothing about the C-O-O-K-I-E thing. So, you know, they just had a lot of, of applications for that particular position, and I got to know the, the fellow student that, that got the position, and so we, we had a good friendship while we were there. But... Uh, my heart was broken. The plan was not working out at all. And when they had called me and said, no, you didn't get this position, Troy asked me, would you be interested in something full-time? Dumb brain, no, full-time doesn't fit my plan. <laughs> they had a position in international ministries that was open, and it wasn't a real fancy position, but unbeknownst to me, that the Vice President of International Ministries and my, the man who became my particular supervisor, they knew they needed somebody with pastoral experience in this particular position. But I said, no, I need something part-time. So brokenhearted, I called Jan and told her I didn't get the job. And we cried. And then I said, they asked if I'd be interested in something full-time. And she said, you call them right back. <laughs> And as I look back at it, I know that God knew better than I did that I needed full-time position to support my family. I needed the insurance that went along with it. God had answered our prayer and blessed our planning with something better than we had ever thought. Nehemiah had the faith to wait. 
He had the faith to ask when God worked, and he exhibited the faith to plan. That's mustard seed faith. That's the faith that uproots and pulverizes the mountains before us. What are the mountains between where you are and where God wants you to be? What are the mountains that stand in the way of us as Grace Baptist Church and who God wants us to be and what God wants us to do? I don't know what all the mountains are. You go, you go around a corner and you see another mountain. You know, I'm reminded of the core of this discovery of Lewis and Clark where, where Clark went up this mountain ridge and got to the top and thinking he would look down the other side and see the Pacific Ocean and that that would be what they called the Northwest Passage where they could get simply to the Pacific Ocean. And he looked out over there and he saw the Rocky Mountains. Behind that was the Cascade Mountains and behind that it was mountain after mountain after mountain. And historically they say that's the day the Northwest Passage died. But little did he know what that would open up as they crossed those mountains and others crossed those mountains. And you know, most of us are here in, in Emmett, Idaho today because our ancestors crossed those, those mountains. I don't know what the mountains are, but I do know this. It's not us that are in trouble. It's the mountains that are in trouble. Because mustard seed faith pulverizes those mountains. And like Nehemiah, we can move into what God has for us. Shall we pray? Father, as I think about faith, I, I think of the man that said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we pray for this mustard seed faith. The faith that has the patience to ask or to wait, but also that faith that when you start opening the doors, that we will have the faith to go through those doors, Lord. To follow you. And Father, I pray that whether it's a, a personal ministry that somebody might be thinking about right now, Lord, or it's our ministries as, as Grace Baptist Church, Father, that, that as we look for those opportunities, that you will bless our planning and uh, our, our commitment to, to these, Lord, and that you will move us in faith the same way that you moved Nehemiah. And Father, maybe it's in somebody's personal life and maybe it's a health issue or, or something like that, Lord, or, or financial difficulty, Lord. We also have mountains in our own personal walk with you, Lord. And I just pray that you would give each one the faith, Lord. And more than anything else, you will show them those times that you are working in wonderful and spectacular ways on their behalf because you have promised to do this and we pray it in Jesus name Amen